The following broadcast was produced by the Lighthouse for the Blind in San Francisco as part of our Lighthouse Learning Library. He said he wanted to teach, and I said, well, what, uh, well we just, you know, we have a few odds and ends, uh, but we don't have any particular thing. His, he, was agri- he was working on his Ph.D. in agricultural mm-hmm. economics. So they, he said, well, I'll teach anything you want. So he said, well, can you teach German? He said, sure. Can, can you teach chemistry? Sure. Can you teach physics? Sure. Can you, can you take care of our athletic program? Sure. So he was going to get a job. So whatever they asked, he said, sure. <laughs> and so he studied a little bit of German toward his orals for his Ph.D., but uh, he just had a practice of saying that when they wanted to know some vocabulary or words that he didn't know or well, physics, he'd say, now you're, we're getting ahead of ourselves. That's not till next week, so we'll take it when we get there. <laughs> and he just made sure he knew it before he got there. Wow. <laughs> but he had a great deal of confidence. Uh-huh. Uh, so he, uh, they didn't have an athletic program, so he put that on. And to start with, for him, um, do you want a sip of water? No, thank you. Okay, it's in front of you whenever you want it, and I'll reach for it. Um, So I don't know whether you want to know a little bit about him. He was uh, taking care of lands in the uh, Midwest uh, that were um, acres and acres of lands that had tenant farmers on them and Mm -hmm. that his mother owned, and she was elderly, so he was doing that. He was getting his top degree in Masons. He decided they needed an athletic after-school program, so he decided to do that. And he wanted to do 4-H, so he decided to do that. Mm-hmm. And he had uh, the boys coming back to school who had been working on farms for a number of years, and then they were told they had to go back to school until they were 18 or graduated. Mm-hmm. So they weren't too happy mm-hmm. <laughs> about going back to school after making money and, and being free. His students. His students. Wow. So then uh, when he was up here, he found out that... Um, a man that had been in his fraternity at Cal had uh, started a lodge, which is uh, west of here. Um, and it was a mountain lodge that he had uh, gotten together with uh, his wife's family who put up the money to begin to buy some acreage up there. And my father got interested in his uh, fraternity brother's project uh, up on the hill. It had been a health resort in the 1800s called Solid Comfort Home. Was that near here? It was just, uh, <laughs> it's just up Mount Veter from here. Mm-hmm. If you're just going to go up Mount Veter, mm-hmm. go up the slope of this, it's an extinct volcano. Uh-huh. And that's another story, so we can have lots of sidetracks. I find that there's places around here, especially new books out and forthcoming books, that say, oh, it's not volcanic. Hmm. And uh, that the, there's no volcanic uh, activity from the past here anywhere. It's way up in Lake County. And uh, that you need to listen to this particular expert that's been quoted and quoted and quoted. Except that he's wrong. <laughs> this is volcanic. If you go to the geodesic survey maps, if you go to the geological survey maps, you can do it right now on the Internet, and it's all volcanic. Uh, it's a... Uh, like, why didn't you describe a circle C uh, at the top when uh-huh. you stand with a geodesic survey mark? Well, there should be only one, but there are two up there. Uh-huh. And we're the side that blew out. Uh-huh. That's why we have this slope mm-hmm. that goes out more gradually on this side. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, there's mineral springs from the water that comes through the volcanic um, 
rubble mm -hmm. that, that filters the water and has mineral springs. So there was a health resort up there, and uh, my father got involved in that. Was he a healthful guy himself, or was this a business opportunity? Well, yes and yes. You're great. <laughs> my father, uh, there's so many lovely diversions. Um, when he went to get his master's degree, he went to Wisconsin, and uh, to University of Wisconsin. And while he was back there, he had just recovered from almost dying of the flu epidemic in wow. 1918. And he'd been unconscious for several days. His father was a doctor, came up by train from San Diego. Uh, and his sister had just died at Cal. They were both at Cal um, and of the epidemic. Wow. Uh, she had gotten exposed by taking care of people who were sick. And so he had just recovered from that. He said, I was a shadow of my former self. But he went back to take his, it was a two-year program in Wisconsin, and he decided to take it in one year and start a fraternity back there, same one that he'd had been at Cal for his uh, undergraduate degree. And so he decided, he found out that they had an athletic event back there that took all school year, that uh, you did certain things to prove that you could play football, certain things, baseball, certain things to be sure you're ex excellent at uh, volleyball, baseball, the whole th basketball. Mm -hmm. And so that all year long you needed to take a, a, a part in these events. And um, track, you had to pole vault, you had to run the mile under a certain uh, amount of time. So he did these things? Yeah, he said, well, you know, I think I'll go out for that. I feel pretty <laughs> wow. skinny and tired and yeah. worn out by this flu, and I, but I'm alive. And so he didn't have any clothes, so he started this fraternity, and he'd find somebody oh, that was on the which, football team. Which fraternity is it? I'm trying to think of which one it was. I don't okay. think of it offhand, but no, I might come up with it. I have his, you know, keys, Phi Beta Kappa, and I think there's a fraternity key on there. Um, I know right where it used to be. Um, so he would borrow somebody that was on the baseball team. He'd try to find somebody that had the right shoes and clothes for that and for basketball mm -hmm. and, you know, for – he had his own swimming tr trunks. And then when it came to track, they had that on a number of different things. He'd never pole vaulted before, and you had to go over a, a certain height that – track people would do. And so he just asked the man, he said, well, how many steps am I supposed to take? And where am I supposed to plant the pole and so forth? And uh, at the end of the year, why well, he was um, declared the most athletic man on campus. Wow. So yes on that so one. So, but he was also out to make money. Yeah. <laughs> and by then he'd already bought an apartment building with some fraternity brothers down in uh, uh, the Burlingame area. Wow. So the health resort, at that time, a health resort meant a place for people who were suffering from some illness, right, who are trying to um, get some fresh air and no water. Particularly, they were advertising this for several specific things. One was asthma, because uh -huh. the air is warm and dry up here, and right. it's just wonderful for lungs. They even thought of making this particular area into a health resort for consumptives, they call, uh -huh. call them. That's the flu, right? uh, what? Is that the flu? No. What is No, it's when you have... Um, what is that infection that they have? Tuberculosis. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Tuberculosis TB. And it was called consumption. They yeah. thought of here Sorry. or they thought of the place up at the hill where my father started up there. 
But uh, yes, he was into making money and doing good for the world. Mm-hmm. He was going to change the world and make it better. So that was his introduction to Mount Vida in this area. Yes, was this fraternity brother up the hill. Mm-hmm. And so he got involved because his um, grandfather and uncle had started Buck Hill Falls. And Buck Hill Falls is famous in the east, and it's in the Pocono Mountains. And it ha- it's a major resort development. I mean, they've got Olympic swimming pool, tennis courts, huge lodge made out of stone that has ballrooms and dining rooms in it. And they had house lots that they sold off, and people built big stone houses. And so he had this dream that he was going to come out west, and he was going to build on the mountainside and have this big lodge, and he was going to, ta-da! And um, so he got uh, his fraternity brother, Van Rensler, enthused about this. Well, you don't have enough land. We've got to get more land. So he put up a bunch of money, my dad did, to buy land on the north side of the little lodge they started because people had to park down at the swimming pool that was still left over from the health resort all the way up to get to this little lodge. So he said, we're going to buy the land up there, and we've got to buy the land all the way down to the summit, and we're going to have house lots, and we're going to, this is going to be grand. So they, he, he put his money in, and it was all on the basis of there wasn't enough water for his big dreams. They needed a place with a good spring. So where was the best spring on the mountain? It was here. So he put up all the money himself here to get this land. And uh, it, it, he kept adding on to it. First it was 320 acres, then it was 600 acres, then it was 725 acres. kept adding more land to it. And that was to get the water. And he was going to provide the water, and they were going to pump it uphill so that they could develop the big lodge and all these um, lots that they were going to sell off. And then he thought, well, if he's going to have this land, what is he going to use it for? And he decided to use it for a boys' camp. Mm-hmm. And so now, by the time that he's got his eye on this land, uh, it's 1926, going on 1927. And he was born in 1900, so it's easy. He was 27 and 27. Oh, it's so nice. nice. <laughs> I don't have to do any math in the air. I like math written down. <laughs> Unless it's money coming in, I guess I could figure that one out. <laughs> anyway, um, so uh, he came down and met the lady that lived here. Uh, her name was Audrey Hanford, and she was grieving because her husband had just died. And they had bought this a couple of years before, and this was going to be their playground at their retirement. And they bought it just an individual couple, and they lived in this house. And this house used to have four bedrooms, but uh, one of them has been had the wall taken out of the middle, <laughs> and so it's three bedrooms now. But this is where they lived, and they named it Four Oaks, because it was surrounded by four oaks. And that funny niche that's right behind Brian across the way, mm-hmm. that was an oak tree in there. That's why oh. the wall goes around that way oh, and that way so and that way and has a big scoopy out of it because wow. they built around the oak tree. Yeah. And the last oak tree was on the bottom side of this hill, and it died quite a few years oh. ago. But it's still four oaks to me. <laughs> it's still four oaks to me. Uh, I like people that like their trees so much that they like build their house you know, yeah, around it. Yeah. That really says a lot. <laughs> like there's a restaurant in Bend, Oregon that has a tree right in the middle of it. <laughs> it's lovely. 
Um, so, what, did, what did you know about the Hansons? Well, the, they very. I knew her. I met her. Uh, her name was Audrey, and my parents named me Audrey. There's a whole story to tell you sometime as to how I became Hope. Uh, and and she thought that uh, that I had been named for her. And she felt very flattered about that. My parents were quick to reassure me that, no, I wasn't, but they liked the name. (laughs) They liked the name. It means fair. Uh, And she was a chubby woman, jolly-looking with a ruddy complexion. She married four times, and she married two brothers. So Hanford and Hanford, and in between she married Heck. So her embroidered towels could have H. H and H on them without any problem. (laughs) And uh, she had more money than she could ever spend. And uh, so my father talked to her about, okay, it's private property. It was private property before that and before that and before that to get back to when it was um, Johannesburg Resort. And that instead of having it be a private property, to make it a property that it could have uh, other people public use to it. And his idea was a boys' camp. And at that time, um, the cars were not very powerful. And just coming up the road that you came up, Mm. we would stop twice while my dad got out and took uh, one of those large... Um, cans that you would get in a commercial kitchen. It was empty and washed out and kind of pinched on one side, hiked down to the stream, put a towel over the silver maiden on top of the um, radiator. It began to let the steam out and try not to burn himself and get it and then put some water in from the stream, Mm -hmm. put the maiden back on top again and uh, drive further before we could coast down here. So my point of saying that is that that one was the 32 Buick, Um, is that having a camp for boys here was like having a camp now in the High Sierras. Right, yeah. Because this was remote. remote. They were really getting out into the woods, Mm -hmm. and uh, many of them had never spent a night away from home. So he was going to make a remote place to build young men's character. And where were the men... And boys coming from what part of the The whole Bay Area, but a lot of them from San Francisco. Uh, A lot of them also from uh, Alameda, Albany, Berkeley. Um, uh, That's a story as to how he got a director that helped him all year long to line up boys. And I I have now made a video, which I brought up. Uh, one copy uh, from 1935 of the camp activities in black and white that they used during the nine months of the school year to go around and show to parents, Mm. your kid can do this if they come up to camp. And uh, so I've got that on video so that we can use that in a documentary showing like the the pool that we had, which is now a lawn. So we'll take a picture of the lawn with the uh, the concrete border still uh-huh. around the lawn, and then we'll shift into there all these people diving into it and swimming, and then we'll come back to a lawn. <laughs> so we'll take these different parts and pieces and shift from what is now into what was in the past and back to now again. So camp 
wasn't uh, so popular back then as it, it is now. It was very new, yeah. a very new idea. Did it to, appeal to like people with more money or like in the you beginning? Know, who... It was people who had money, and some of the people, uh, some of the boys were brought by chauffeurs, uh-huh. and the parents would go off to Europe for the summer. Mm-hmm. And, well, summer camp's only eight weeks. Well, we won't be back for 10 or 12 weeks. Uh-huh. You'll just have to take care of our boy. So there was always these stragglers that were wow. <laughs> taken care of until the day school came to, uh, on and the parents arrived back. Uh, so there were some like that that they'd never made a bed and they'd you know, never taken care of their clothes or things like that, a whole new experience. And uh, they slept out under the stars. So that was a new experience. But his idea was character building, building up your health and body. And it's very interesting to look at these 35, 1935 movies. All the kids are very slender. There are no overweight ones. And I can remember that my father would proudly tell parents that uh, Johnny gained 10 pounds, and they'd be so pleased, you know. And it was mostly muscle because the other thing was to become proficient at many sports, to build them self-confidence and their uh, activity level. So uh, those were very high uh, to self-confidence, camaraderie, proficiency. Every boy was to leave camp water safe. Mm-hmm. They couldn't come for less than two weeks. Generally, they came for four, six, or eight. But two weeks to be sure that they all left water safe so they could handle themselves if ever there was a boating accident or something. I wanted to, to ask, um, so your, your father was an academic, and yes. yet he was hooked into all this youthful boy scouting and all that. How how did the program evolve? Did he, was this his idea? Was it his, his total, director? His total idea was uh, what would you do to build a boys camp? And he at the time there were a few other boys camps, and so he hooked into that network and he went to meetings uh, and he took their bulletins to see what are others doing. He even joined the group for how do you take movies of camp activities? How do you make movies of stories? We had one that was Bosco the Bad Man, and that was one of the counselors, and it was a mystery, and the campers were trying to solve what was going on. It was just adorable. I wish I had it. And they did Robin Hood and so forth. So he was discovering it as he went. Uh, and it all started with this concept that is going to be Lacoya Boys Camp because the name given to the lodge that had already been chosen, that he was joining in with his fraternity brother, was Lacoya Lodge. So we'll make it Lacoya Boys Camp, and the plan is we will converge these two corporations at some point, and then it, they will be one, and this will be the water, and that will be public, and this will be... Um, the boys' camp in the summertime. So the whole plan was to merge the two of them. Now I should just take a breath and let questions be mm-hmm. here. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so how long did it last as a boys' camp, and what, what brought down its demise, if anything? Well, um, you've already sort of uh, <coughs> foretold that, that uh, by 1947, which was the last year my father uh, ran it, uh, cars were pretty spiffy after World War II, and people were going to Tahoe and Yosemite, and they were the Sierra Club groups were taking off, and this seemed tame mm. by comparison. Mm. So it didn't have the same intriguing call of the wilderness mm. that it had had. 
So uh, he decided, and my mother decided, that they had they got married in 1928, and they'd spent all their summers here. And my mother was urging it. She found a Reader's Digest article, and it was about finding in a, a jungle in China a hidden monastery from centuries past, and it had an, some sort of an engraving in the stone wall that said, it's later than you think. And she used that article to get my dad <laughs> to sell the business so that she could go to Hawaii in the summer or go somewhere else mm-hmm. and not just be at camp. So the last two years of camp in 1948 and 1949 they were run by a counselor who bought the business. He had been here before. Uh, he was a teacher from Vallejo. So he ran in 48 and 49 but I have to say that the gentleman really had no charisma. No, no. And it, t- it took a lot of, of um, jeu de vivre, <laughs> you know, enthusiasm. And we're going to do this, and we're going to hike this mountain, and we're going to set up tents, and we're going to rah, 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 and we're going to have a pool competition, and we're going to have a circus, and, you know, this boom, ba. And that was all the time, every day. <laughs> and... Uh, the poor man had had his back fused in several places or in one stream of vertebra. And so he was bent over all the time, and he could only talk to you when he bent his knees so that he could rock back and talk at you. But he wanted to do it, and he was very enthusiastic. And my dad said, I will give you full support, whatever you want me to do and help with, I will. And uh, so that was the basis. Mm-hmm. And the, we need to go to, back to the property in 1927, my dad convinced Audrey Hanford to sell the basic property around the main camp, uh, 320 acres minus some pieces that had been sold off, um, to my dad. But the first year, because she was still going through the um, legal process of all of the properties and things with her husband's death, the court and probate said he could lease it for a year. Mm -hmm. So I I finally got the lease recently, and the lease um, says he has to dredge the lake, (laughs) which we know about needing to dredge the lake. Um, And he had other requirements that he had to do if he was going to uh, hold the land. Mm -hmm. So he did. He was allowed to um, be in this house and have one car in the driveway and the various other stipulations mm-hmm. that the probate court had allowed. What was the purchase price of the house, uh, of the land? I have that all on another paper. <laughs> it was, uh, uh, it's all in with, and I don't recall it uh, offhand, in a list that I have back home where he has the land listed, how much it costs to put the pool in, how much to bring the telephone in, how much to bring the electricity in, and so forth, all down. And it's really interesting to see how he's got it all broken down with his own money. Had to put, the road has had so eroded, the old road, which you did not come in on because the landsman sold off. Uh, it had washed away enough from the days of the stagecoach that it just couldn't have camp traffic, so we had to do that. But when he was taking it over, it was gas lanterns, outhouses, uh, and, you know, there was <laughs> the only heat that we had when I was here were portable um, 
lantern-like uh, contraptions. Yeah. He had kerosene wick in the bottom yeah. of it, and you could turn it up and down, you know. Yeah. And uh, we would have that for cold days. Mm-hmm. Um, but having electricity and phone was a big deal. Okay. And putting in a septic system was another big deal. Um, and so then in 1928 uh, is when the development came. And so my father was working on expanding the lodge hugely and putting a wall of glass windows. And sometime I can share that with you. I have beautiful pictures from the lodge and how they had a wall of glass windows that looked out all over the Napa Valley and to the ra- ranges of mountains beyond. Is, there any, is the lodge still there? It burned down. Oh, wow. And I see that there's so many things to be corrected because I see in books and other places mm-hmm. that it says it was a forest fire. No, it was not a forest fire. Uh, the man... Uh, Bob Jones, who had bought it, was worked, working on remodeling and upgrading and renovating it. And he believes that it was ever so often there would be, he called them hobos, that would come and stay out of the rain in the basement. And he thinks that they started a fire down there because yeah. it was cold and then mm-hmm. burned it down. And I burned down a couple of the cabins, two or three or four cabins, because my father had built cabins and they had a dance floor. What's up there now? It's still some of the cabins. Mm-hmm. So I think they have a between 15 and 18 cabins that they're legally allowed to rent. Mm-hmm. What's it called? Just LaCoya. And the magic tree is on that land, yes. We should, should we yeah. divert to that? Yes, there's, there are actually, did you see the tree down in the ravine when you were up there? There's a sister tree. It's, Mm-hmm. There's a sister tree down in the bottom of the ravine that is a candelabra tree also. But it isn't as big and it isn't as grand. But it was left behind for the same reason. Before we get too ahead of our story, I, want, I had heard that your father, before Rose Resnick, um, had some kind of connection with uh, California School for the Blind and that blind kids were here before the camps. That is another interesting tangent. <laughs> I love it. Uh, yes, uh, he very early on found that uh, there was a Boy Scout troop out of the uh, Berkeley-Oakland area that particularly had uh, members that were uh, blind or visually impaired. And he thought, wouldn't it be wonderful? In the beginning, it was before camp, uh, the boys' camp started. And later on, when I was in my teens, you know, 11, 12, 13, 14, it was after camp. And so camp was set up in the beginning early, and they came, but I was a small child then. Afterwards, I would see them when they would come after camp was closed, and um, <laughs> there were a few stragglers, who, uh, campers that their parents were still in Europe. But other than that, you know, we had the horses and the swimming pool and all the activities, and the whole families were invited to come up and stay for a week or two weeks and use all the facilities and the kitchen and everything. And uh, my most amazing memory is of riding my white horse and being down by the Redwood Circle, and one of the young boys who was blind came up and wanted to know if he could pet my horse on his, you know, his withers. And I said, sure, of course, it's a tame horse, and he'd love to be petted. And I could see he just putting his hand and sort of dreamily doing it. He said, it's a white horse, isn't it? I've never forgotten that, because it was a white horse. And yet, how could he intuit that it was a white horse? And I didn't say my horse is silver. You know, because might go the name might go with a white horse, and that just gives me goosebumps. And one of my high school girlfriends, I for uh, about eleven, twelve years, um, stopped about 
a decade ago. But 11, 12 years, I used to put on a high school reunion for Berkeley High School, and I remet one of the high school girls that I sort of knew, Connie Budge and Dodie. And it turns out her family had come up here with uh, uh, Boy Scouts, blind Boy Scouts, and, and stayed here. And I just didn't know her at the time. <laughs> We're probably at that time in different uh, junior highs. Do you remember what kind of things the Blind Boy Scouts did here, and what years was that? I think they started in the 30s and went all the way through to the end of camp. Uh, uh, Well, I know they loved the swimming pool. That was big. And then, of course, the dining hall was big. Campfires were big. Um, I imagine that riding horses was pretty special to them. Um, We didn't have beat baseball, so they would not have done that on the rec field. Um, They would have had nature, I'm sure. Nature used to be taught um, as a period of day, um, and identification of uh, branches from the evergreens and the deciduous trees and how they grow and their seeds and all of those kind of things. So I would imagine they carried that on. But I was so delighted when I came one time and I was wandering around camp in... uh, early 2000, probably March, and I'd gone down to the base of Wing Canyon and come back, and there was a man standing down by the fire circle, and I hadn't recognized him before, and I went over and I said, hi, you know, I'm Hope, and, uh, you know, I have a past here, and, and he shook my hand, and he said, well, I'm Tony, and uh, I'm the director here, and I said, oh, I've got pictures up in the car I want to show you, and he said, okay, where's the car up by the office? He said, well, I'll meet you up there, so I wandered up there, and oh, it was just the most blessed meeting, and he said, well, we're having our anniversary uh, in July, and we'd love to have you come up and tell about history of camp, and I'd really come all the intervening years in the fall, winter, and spring. And uh, so it was just the most wonderful thing to get connected with the summer program. You have been a volunteer, and then you actually were on our staff as the nature area leader, and so that's how we started really getting the stories out um, so I could you know, start sharing with others. But other campers started hearing the story, and the adult session, the veteran session, love hearing the stories mm-hmm. because it's such a rich history that no one really knew much about. No, they didn't. They really didn't. My, my parents were here. Uh, 1928 to uh, 1947, and after that they didn't come. Uh, my mother came once uh, when I wasn't with her, um, once when I brought her. My dad never came back. Um, he felt that chapter was over in his life. And so because I've come continuously since 1932, I'm the longest connected living person yeah. with camp by 60-plus years. Now, there may have been Indians that were connected here longer than that. But but, uh, this is, yeah, my my, because I came when I was five months old, this is my my 81st um, summer to come here. So can you, yeah, just kind of give us a a basic outline of what it used to look like when you were back, you know, as as early as you can remember? I I can do that. I have uh, a lot of that written up already that I can just oh, give okay. you. It's That'd typed. Okay, it's typed. But I'll, I'll do I'll do a little bit of too. that. Um I was going to s- say about the land the uh the land my father started buying it and you had asked about the price which I will find out for you. And he had a lot of pieces that he bought uh separate from that. And then uh, my father had invested heavily in the stock market. Mm -hmm. And he didn't tell my mother that when he was dating her. He was working on 
teaching high school, building up the lodge, buying this land, and going back to the Pocono Mountains to see about how they were running and the resort back there, Buck Hill Falls. But he had a hard time getting to enough classes at Cal for his Ph.D. because he had these other things that kept him out of Berkeley. So he thought, I need to find somebody that's taking the courses that I am that would lend me notes. Mm. And he saw a lady that he said, she said to be a very smart woman. And she does a lot of note-taking. I'll see if I can sidle up to her and see if she'll lend me her notes. Well, that was my mother. <laughs> and so that's what he relied on. And they, got, they met in 27 and got married in 28. And so that year, in 28, the first year of their marriage, she didn't know that he had an apartment building and that he had um, a great deal of money in the stock market and was a wealthy man because he didn't want her to marry him for his money. Mm-hmm. So um, she helped him that first summer that they were here together in 28, and they, that's when they brought in the electricity and the phone and pipe water around the property. Uh, was the, the whole thing. But the lake was already here? The lake was here from the 1800s. Mm-hmm. So that's when they put in the dining hall that needs to be propped up. It could be propped up. It would not take much to put... I mean, I've propped up... Uh, a, a building that was so much worse than that and made it a charmer. It just, the building down on the river. Yeah, it just needs to... to um, I, I, my friend and I did it with a auto jack to put the, uh, the pier box under it and then put wedges in it. So was the dining hall built by your dad? Yes. He built it, and it's got lots of really good w- wood in it. It just needs to be propped up so that it's leveled, and part of the boards put back in. It would take very little to make that highly functional as a roller rink again. What year was it? It was built in 28. Cabins are now. Are those pretty much the way the platforms were? You got it, Tony. Yes, the way girls' cabins are. That's where he built uh, uh, the largest platform that I will have still pictures and movies of. And uh, so where the girls' cabins are, there was a big tent platform there with lots of beds on it. Iron beds that could be folded up in the off season, really? Iron beds. and uh, and then they had springs that were str- it was a mesh stretched across with springs around the edges, and so when you put the two cotton pads on it, it was kind of like a little bit like being in a hammock. Wow. They kind of stretched down like a hammock, and the boys brought their sleeping bags and their pillows with them, and then across the back you'll see oh, in wait, the picture. Why were there girls? Wasn't it a hmm? camp for boys? Why were there girls? I thought it was just a camp for boys. I meant to say boys. Oh, okay, because I thought where the girls' cabins were. Where the girls' cabins are, there were boys. That was flattened for that purpose because there were more young boys than uh, the juniors and the seniors. Uh They were the midgets. (laughs) And the midgets slept in Sun Valley, and that is a sunny spot there, so the youngest ones could have the warmer spot. And they had the little beds. They every every camper and I too had the single, well, except, yeah, a single uh, bed. And there's one down in the dining hall now. That's if you look at it, that's the kind of bed we had. It's okay. by the wall. Um, it has a little different springs on it than we had. So your your father made it into the campfire circle, what yes, we call Redwood Circle now. Yes, he did. And uh, he may have taken out some trees in the center because when I came in 2000, it wasn't being used and it was all filled with trees. And when I would come up here in the off-season, I would bring my tools to, uh, you know, 
clean things up. And so I had my saws and so forth and sawed the trees out that were all in between the benches there. Mm-hmm. And uh, that could then be used again as a fire circle. And I see in the early pictures, uh, he did not have the logs between the circles. He was using the amphitheater that I understand you plan to uh, reestablish below boys' cabins. And I have a a couple of wonderful pictures of that swale there that is the natural amphitheater. And I think that you're maybe planning to do it backwards from the way my father did it. He had the stage backed to the girls' bathrooms uphill, and the amphitheater was on the far side toward where the um, road goes around past uh, the chapel. That side was the hillside of it. And it is a marvelous amphitheater. Can you tell us what what went on there? How did it, how was it used originally? Well, when my father put it in, he started the campfires there because he had a stage. He put a stage in, and then uh, the kids could stand up there and perform. And a lot of them brought instruments with them, so they would uh, perform solo or they would uh, form a little band. Practically always had a band. Uh, somebody had the drums. Somebody, and we always had somebody that would blow the bugle for reveille and taps, and for the flag to be raised and lowered. Was the lower chapel designed by your dad? The chapel that you use as the chapel, the the one with a stream by it, was my my dad. Yes, he wanted to offer every Sunday a chapel service that was non-denominational. And uh, he he was a Quaker, Society of Friends. So he, even at his fraternity, they didn't have any Sunday morning service. So at Cal, he had a service that anybody could join in. And he had that here, but it was all voluntary. And the, under some of the seats now, you see the little rotted seats there, but they would have been Douglas fir, and that's why they didn't last. Whereas mm-hmm. when he put the redwood circle in, he used redwoods. Right. And so they're... Fine, but uh, he did not have the redwood circle for campfire in the beginning because I can see in the pictures there's no logs in the early pictures, and it was used as the nature circle. You see the kids gathered around in the circle there as one of the counselors teaching about the plants around here. I was just going to say, as as we came in, you started to talk about wineries and other agricultural (laughs) things. Can you talk about what grew here that was production, what what was consumed, what animals, what plants, what agriculture? Agriculture, that is something that I'm just, just agog about when I'm finding out about it. First of all, I'll answer your, your question directly, and then I'll take backtrack from it. The area that is the parking area, all the way down to um, just the road uh, that you drove in on here, was uh, in wine grapes in the late 1800s and early 1900s. And where the big tin barn is, was a winery. There also uh, were at some point, and it may not have been until the early tw- uh, 1920s, a whole row of chicken coops, many chicken coops, along the uh, edge of the hill rise that goes along the flat area in front of the barn, the current barn. There's that flat area in front of the current barn. And up parallel to that, in the hills, were chicken coops. Who kept those? Were they the people who had the winery? I I, I think that it was for the, the resort, in part, but also apparently the white of eggs 
has been used for a very long period of time in taking the um, cloudiness out of wine. And so it may not have been just for chickens to eat right. and eggs to eat, but to refine the wine. The wine. Yeah. So when um, did the grapes come out? Like, what, what, what did your dad, when developing the camp, take the, the vineyards out? I, or? I, uh, when I, 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 my earliest memories go back to about three and a half, and I don't, there were no grapes no there. Grapes, right. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, there, there, uh, where the road is that we came in and out of, uh, Brian went instead of going straight th- through the what we would say is the olive grove and then starting up the hill, we turned left around the parking lot and went out a much shallower road. Mm-hmm. And that was shallow because it's all of the road that's through camp, and that road was the stagecoach road. Mm-hmm. And it was a four horse stage, so you had to have it not have too much grade to it. They would not have had the grade that you have now. And so just as you would go around that corner there, up on the hillside, was apple orchard. Wonderful, wonderful apples. And uh, that is one of the things that's mentioned in the uh, literature, is that they had vineyard and orchard. Do you know what variety of apples or what varieties of wine grapes? I don't know, but... (laughs) I like to imagine, since the wine grapes were for the Johannesburg uh, re- Health Resort, that they might have been Johannesburg Riesling. <laughs> Wouldn't that be kind of fun? <laughs> Maybe. Um, How about the olive trees? Do you have any idea when they were planted? And when they, they were planted at that time, way back then. When the, you see the baby grapes, the baby grapes in the late 1800s, and and the olive trees are baby olive trees. You can see that they're this is a new establishment here, and uh, everything's getting started. Um, cattle or cows are mentioned, so I, I think they were doing their own milk. Um, and we had a dairy cow that was here for quite a while with one of the caretakers, so it was raw milk, probably. I don't think they had pasteurization. Um, the, there were quite a few mature um, walnut trees when we came, and they're still here. So they were growing walnuts, black walnuts and English walnuts. And, of course, right out in front of here is a very, very old, it was brushing your hair when we were standing out there, pomegranate tree. Yeah, I saw that. So how old do you think that pomegranate tree is? Well, it was old when my parents came. It so, so nice tree. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not watered in the summertime. It's amazing that it's it hangs on. It's got a on it. They're green. Uh, yeah, yes, but they never develop. They're yeah. just like a golf ball. <laughs> and uh, my daughter, Darlene, has had the idea that uh, some of the church groups were very interested in, in her idea is to have a Bible walk for church groups because you have a number of plants here that are mentioned in the Bible. And that's a very uh, well-known one in the, is it Arizona, where it is, I think. And people go there to do the walk as to each of the plants that are mentioned. And, of course, pomegranate is what the forbidden fruit was. It was not an apple. Uh, it was a pomegranate. So that might be kind of fun to have it labeled. And uh, you've got the palm trees. You've got all these different things that are mentioned in the Bible. So it seems like in 28, your father was kind of flush with cash, put yes. in all these great improvements, electricity and uh, telephone and building construction, dining hall. 
and the stock market crashed, and this <laughs> place lived through the Depression. Yes. How did he deal with the change of his, his dreams and well, fortune? He, he used to say, uh, I, I um, lost, you know, enough to be lost a million dollars or half a million dollars in the, in the Depression. And I think he was used to say half a million dollars in the Depression. So instead of on the plus side, he was on the minus side. And he would always say, and that's when bread was five cents a loaf. That I was a million dollars or half a million dollars in debt when bread was five cents a loaf. And he would never have declared bankruptcy. No, that would not not be moral. He was the Quaker to the core. And uh, so he thought, well, I'll just have to make it back. But he couldn't continue the payments. And um, I'm just getting the documentation, spending a lot of days down at the... um, a county recorder's office, uh, and finding that in, it's in the mid-30s, he, he finally had to give up on making the payments to purchase the land. And by then, Audrey Hanford was so convinced he was doing so much good for so many boys that she would uh, just let him pay a little um, lease on it. And at that time, I think it was 19, 1935, the end of summer 1935, and we had been in this house up to then. And so then she took back her house, and we moved over to the inn of Johannesburg Inn. That's where the current lodge is. It's the same footprint. So he leased it from then on. And then in 1945, she decided to sell the property to uh, Mr. Gibbons on the condition that every summer it could be uh, at least as LaCoya Boys Camp. And so he came in um, for, he was here for 45, 46, 47 that I was here. And so he divided the house that we'd had the hole in uh, to ourselves in half. And half the house was occupied by uh, I guess a caretaker in winter and our horse wrangler in summer, and we had the other half of the house. But instead of every morning my getting up and putting the wood in the newspaper in the big iron stove and getting it started on the cold mornings and going out to my chicken coop, which was where the lawn is by the lodge now, uh, and getting some hen eggs and getting the big iron skillet out and putting some butter in it or some bacon in it and starting breakfast and cooking cooking breakfast for my sister, who's five years younger than I. Uh, I would start the day on the big iron stove. Well, that was great for me when I was a kid. I loved that. And we did all the canning in the heat of summer on the wood stove with all the pots boiling. And uh, there was a kerosene stove. Never seen one anywhere else before. We had a kerosene stove that had mason jars, uh, eight mason jars with wicks in them. And you could roll up the wicks and have eight burners going when it's 100 degrees in the shade outside. What were we you had, canning? Well, we canned black, um, blackberry jelly and jam for all the blackberries that are here, the apples that uh, were from the apple orchard. And uh, so I'm trying to think. I want to say Macintosh, because you asked that question. They were Macintosh. Um, then there was a pear tree where the phone used to be at the end of the lodge, so we had... Uh, pears. There still uh, were until you were doing the uh, clearing for fire uh, hazard around buildings, some plum trees. 
so we... Tiny little plum uh, there were tiny plums and big plums. Yeah. And there were Satsuma plums. And my mother always counted on the Satsuma plums for all of her other gels because they have a lot of pectin in them. Oh. And they went down this the side of this road that goes back of the dining hall. Mm-hmm. And just while I'm thinking about it, there's the ravine you've been cleaning out, all of the um, trash. That was the Johannesburg Trash Ravine. And I have just uh, gotten out some of the things that she found down there, a beautiful glass kerosene lantern base and some fire tongs. And I also got out the uh, old oak phone with the silver bells on them, the chromed bells and the the horn that comes down and the cord on the side with a piece that you hold to your ear. (laughs) And we had one of those in the inn. That's where the lodge is now. And one down where I will eventually show you sometime where we had our office, which was just next to where the fire circle is now. And why is it flat for the fire circle? Because there were two volleyball courts there. That's why it's flat. Being Indian was very big in the 30s. I did want to ask you about that. Were there uh, recreations or actual constructions of how Indians used to live on this land over the years that you know of? No, I don't. But I do have pictures of the houses that the uh, Winton Indians made. And I will do something with that for the uh, documentary. And I'm doing a, a lot of, I'm spending a lot of time and a lot of research and I'm making a lot of contacts. And I made this afternoon with the group, make some more contacts with people on the hills. Probably some of them have up the hill, they ha- there's areas where they would have found probably a lot of arrowheads and spearheads and so forth that the Indians had made. But there are no dwellings. And interestingly, there were no grinding stones here. And yet acorns were the major uh, food that they ate. So um, that's a puzzle to me. I, I went to the Soskal Intertribal Council um, powwow yesterday and the day before um, with Darlene and t- my uh, grandchildren. Uh, so I have good contact with Charlie. She's the one that was putting it on. She would love to come and visit sometime. I'd like to see what I could do with her uh, as far as her doing some things on the documentary. Their housing was quite temporary, yeah. and uh, in some of the literature it says that they, after three or four years, they burned them down, uh, so that if there were lice or any uh, deleterious creatures <laughs> in it, then they burned it and built new. Mm-hmm. And so they were quite temporary. They built them apparently about two feet down in the ground, around the edges, and then put uh, bark that bent over the top over, you know, bent willows and things like that. So it was very simple, enough to keep them watertight in winter. And they, they were hunter-gatherers, but they were stationary. They, they were communal, and there were a number of different tribes locally that they traded for. These tribes weren't as good at making bows and arrows as the ones in North uh, Napa Valley, so they traded for that. But uh, they made um, the obsidian tools here. And you know that when you walk from uh, the Kiva over towards where Rick is, you go over a little bridge there where the stream goes underneath. I love the gurgle of that stream. I used to play just up that stream. Probably, uh, that's where I would love to have the Boy Scouts make a path, a little path so we could go up there. Um, 
What would that be? Maybe just beyond where that white pipe is. What is that, 75 feet up there? 60 feet, something like that, along the stream. Because my father, every summer, would make, once I got to be like four years old, uh, rocks to make two ponds there that I could go out the back of the inn and go play in those two ponds and put little sailboats. And uh, now everything's plastic, but my toys were metal, and you had a little wind-up with a propeller on the back uh, to play there. And that is the hillside that I'd really like to um, have... um, my son-in-law, the videographer, do two things. One is to get on the far side of the stream, which you probably need to be able to hike down through uh, uh, some of the brush there from Rick's house and video. I have a picture of my dad next to me, and I have a little sailboat, and I'm there, and he's squatted down next to me, and I'm sitting on the edge of the pond, and then to have that picture as a still with some oral description and then have my son-in-law who is Native American and Mexican with long uh, black hair and swarthy skin and he looks like he should be an Indian on a pinto pony riding bareback across the west with feathers in his hair and that where my dad is we put him and then put one of my grandchildren that's dark haired and so forth where I am and go gradually from the picture of us into where the Indians would have been there. And yesterday I bought a piece, an antler, and I bought some deer skin, which is what then he can put over his knee up on the hillside. Then we'll change and he can move up on the hillside where the Indians made their obsidian tools. And the napping, you put the deer skin over your knee, and then you take the the deer antler point, and you nap along the edge of the obsidian to break it off to make the shape. And I, year after year after year, would get salt sacks from my mother and fill them up with the the obsidian chips from where the Indians made their tools there. So I don't have a house because it didn't last long. But I know that the Indian men, only men made tools, made their tools on the side of the stream at that point. Now, I took so much out of there as a kid. I don't know that I could find anymore. But I went over to Glass Mountain. We want to film Glass Mountain. Have you been to Glass Mountain? What? Oh, we got to go there. We got to go there. And we're going to film it. I went over there with my friend Sharon from town. And she's lived all her life here. Hmm? It, no, no, they walked barefoot from here all the way across the valley and up the valley to the north section on the far side. And there is a formation of volcanic glass that is just absolutely astonishing. I, the first time I went there was in June. And it is just amazing. And uh, so we took some pictures and I got some chunks of obsidian so I can break up some obsidian, put it in the dust up there, (laughs) then show how as a child I went through it and found the obsidian. (laughs) Uh, The black glass. I know you said that this area was really denuded, but I'm wondering, has the wildlife changed around here in the time that you've known it? Well, yes it has. There used to be bear Mm -hmm. and there have, I think that they announced with great uh, success in the newspaper decades ago that they'd finally killed the last bear. And, of course, that isn't my reaction. Uh, for a long time, there weren't any mountain lions, and now they've come back. Mm-hmm. Uh, there have been deer along, but there were elk. Wow. Uh, and the word Lakoya, in a number of sources, and my, what my father was told back in the 20s was the 
went an Indian word for elk, Lokoya, and it sounds Indian, L-O-K-O-Y-A. Do you remember any bear? Were there bear here in the 30s? I don't remember a bear here seeing it, but one time my sister and I in uh, probably 1978 or thereabouts were camping behind the dining hall. Um, that, that part of camp was very central to our lives. That, that lower part of camp was more central to our lives than it is now. Uh, so we were camping there, and she had found a bed spring, and she put it out on the, uh, you know, behind the dining hall and put her sleeping bag on top of it. It has just been t- tossed against the side of the hill. And uh, I slept in the back of her vehicle that had a, a boot, you call it, to it. Mm-hmm. And when she woke up in the morning, she showed me there looked like a big mountain lion paw print in the dust by her bed. Uh, so maybe, maybe there was. I, I, seen, I saw a fox in recent years down on the end of the ball field, the rec field, on the side away from where the back is. Uh, of course, we have skunks and raccoons, um, squirrels, so there are very few squirrels. Um, what about the birds? Do you remember the owls and stuff? Like that? Uh, not so much owls, but there were a lot more birds up until the well, certainly through the seventies. I don't understand how few birds there are now. I have sat on that porch that's just across from where we were sitting, uh, and it, the trees were not grown up in the nineteen seventies, and at uh, dusk, seeing flocks of birds flying each to their own tree of their own kind and each time a new group would go then there's all sorts of chatter because they always want to be up on top naturally you don't want to be down below (laughs) and so there's always rearrangement every time new birds come in and trees all around where we are here would just be having chattering masses of birds at dusk, coming to rest for the night, doesn't happen anymore. And the place used to have chipmunks all over it, just so many chipmunks. And the last chipmunks might have been in the 1960s or something like that. No more chipmunks? No more chipmunks. So uh, one of the things that has changed is the food supply, is the acorns. Uh, the acorns are all eaten out by worms, and so are the... Um, Walnuts, they all have um, grubs that have eaten the insides out. And it may be that, say, the squirrels, which are so few, and the chipmunks ate things that no longer uh, are a supply here. And the Indians, I have read recently, they did small controlled burns around uh, acorn trees and grasses. Uh, Part of the life cycle of the grub that eats the inside of the acorn, the acorn meal, has, uh, is, exists in the ground. So when they burned the ground, they killed the grubs, and therefore they had their food supply. I don't know whether they knew that that's what they were doing, mm-hmm. but they also found that they had more plentiful grass, grasses grow mm-hmm. that then they ate from the grasses if they burned the ground. I wanted to ask you about the spring box that's over by Rick's house. Mm-hmm. That that was put in by your dad, or was that from Johannesburg? That's from day? Johannesburg. I'd love to see it preserved because it could be preserved. Um, if I were doing that, when I have uh, done 
home restorations, uh, I would just simply uh, get a large bore uh, drill if it has the kind of cracking I'm thinking I saw there, and drill in and drill back in uh, a weaving pattern to hold anything. Certainly on this wine cellar down here, it could be done with a crack is that you drill, and then you just put some rebar in there uh, with liquid concrete. And then you can, of course, concrete the, the cracks. But those are both from Johannesburg. I'm probably from 1880s or beyond that. And they're Two precious, the, the the wine cellar that's uh, just up from where the, the Indians were there. Uh, that was because you can't imagine very much that they're bringing ice up here from anywhere because you're talking about a four-horse stage out of Oakville that has to go to Dry Creek and then come up from Dry Creek. And, of course, we owned the land all the way down to Dry, Dry Creek and then later leased it. You're not going to be bringing ice up here, but that little uh, stone uh, shelter by the stream under the heavy redwood trees would be the place that I pictured they had to have as a wine cellar. So shelter. There wouldn't be any other reason to have it there. And it used to have wood shelves on it in the inside. And I, I think that to preserve that in the spring house, there would be two things that would be uh, from... Um, a structure point of view from um, Johannesburg, and a fountain is another, and then of course the rock walls that go along all the roadway. So it's big rocks, and it they did tumble a bit when the uh, cabins by the lakes were reoriented, but they had been perfect up to that time. And then there's that last set of stairs, just uh, uphill from. Um, Cardiac Hill. And the first step is, I think, about 18 inches, and all the rest of the steps are about 8 inches. But that's because that's where the stagecoach would pull up with the huge wagon wheels, and then the ladies and gents could step onto that first step and go up to the lake. And all the development was around the lake. There's pictures, the earliest pictures I have there, I think there's at least nine buildings around the lake, all painted white. So that's why that step is so high. And opposite it, um, on the other side of the road, uphill a little bit more, there's an unusually straight line. And you can see it if you go down at the end of a kiva and you look back from where I had the fragrance garden, there's a straight line there. And that's the step into the blacksmith shop. That 12 feet... The straight there on the edge of the road is where the blacksmith shop was while we were here. And when the property has been sold, that's listed, uh, that there's the farrier tools and the blacksmith shop and the uh, wine-making equipment and so forth. And I used to have the privilege, which you can just imagine, Jasmine or Logan, when they're seven or eight years old, to, to... turn the pump on the bellows to make the coals glow as the um, farrier comes and makes the the shoes for the horses, making the shoes for the horses, and all sorts of interesting things hanging on the walls of that um, shed. There's a time period of three owners between uh, William Blankenberg and his wife that I know ran Johannesburg, and I know how long they ran it, and the Hanfords buying it. And she 
I think that it was just a little less than two years, and they called it Hanford's Rest, which I will have in all of my notes in the documentary. Uh, Hanford's Rest, and it was this idea that he'd worked so hard on getting a ferry business set up between San Francisco and Martinez, I think it was, and then he got a seven-minute ferry that was a pull across mm -hmm. the Carquina Straits, and then the, getting the financing for the Carquinas Bridge, he was a young man, and, and he thought he needed a rest. And they, you've seen pictures of the lighthouse on the island, and that he put the lighthouse in here, and he had life preservers around, and he had a nautical theme to this place. Yeah, wow. interesting. And he that was, died. That was who? That was uh, Avon, A-V-I-N, Hanford. Avon and Audrey Hanford. Mm -hmm. And um, at that time, of course, this building that right over your head, Brian, is where this, the wall used to be for the edge of this building. It looks like it. I mean, you can see And this the was the old part of the building here. Right. And then this part that's uh, where you're sitting, Tony, and mm -hmm. you over there, that was the porch that I played on. It was a, a porch, and I have pictures of myself on my tricycle and so forth out here. And then it was extended and a new porch put, put on. And you can see the windows and everything else about it is old on our side. We had been talking about uh, neighbors and our association with neighbors. Yes. And in the 1930s, it must have been very different. Who lived on the mountain on the road, and did you have much association with neighbors? What did you do together? How did it go in daily life? My father had a lot of association in the 20s and 30s with them because uh, he was buying land from some of them, the Brandlins and Dagos, and there were a number of Italians that he knew that lived uphill from here. They had uh, a lot of know-how of the mountain. They had history. In fact, some of the old-timers had were old enough that they told my father they had played with the Indian children uh, when the Indians were still living here on the mountain. So they were here completely a Stone Age hunter-gatherers to 1826. No contact with outside. Then there was began to be contact simply because the um, Spaniards moved in to Napa Valley. Then uh, Mexico declared its independence, broke off from Spain, so then they were Mexican in the valley. But that's where the development was in the valley. And up here there was no access other than uh, if you wanted to walk through the poison oak. And so they could be pretty protected up here. The, the big problem was in um, 1836, I think I'm right on that, there was um, a smallpox epidemic that killed a major share of all of the Native Americans. They had never had a cold or chickenpox or measles or mumps or any of the, the Western diseases. Um, so they died off in great numbers. So I imagine the Wintons would be affected by that because they did trade with tribes in the valley and they would bring it back up here. But one of the most interesting things I just found out about in looking back at all the, I've been reading my parents' letters from the 20s and 30s and some from the 40s uh, on thin onion skin paper when my mother was typing and my father was writing in beautiful cursive handwriting with layers and layers of carbon paper to write to the family. 
they, they weren't phoning. They were writing letters. And uh, he says in one of the camp bulletins that I read just recently that I think it was 1932, he just bought two horses to add to his string of horses for the campers, and he bought one of them from a member of the local Indian tribe here, local, local. <laughs> and I thought, well, isn't that something? And one of the things that I found that uh, is in error is that a lot of the places and all of the early things that have been put out by Lighthouse was that this was WAPO, and there's about the WAPO Indians, and the WAPO Indians, and <laughs> this is not WAPO. Uh, there were Wapo down in uh, the Napa Valley, but uh, the men who played with the Indian children said that the Indians that lived here said we're Wapo, and I think they should know. They, they called themselves Wapo. That's what they said they were. But the Winton were the largest tribe uh, in Northern California. They go very far north. And the, and the maps I have, like one on the office door, shows that this was Winton here. The other thing that I have in my toolkit as far as knowing who was here is that sometimes my mother and I and my sister would ride cross-country because even though we're the, the Italians, my father would have all sorts of interesting interactions with them, buying land from them, learning about the Indians from them, borrowing or using them to use their wagon and their horses to move things because they were using wagons and horses. And it was a very friendly interaction with the the, the men and the women and so forth. And if there was a fire danger, they all went out, all the men together. There was no fire department. Uh, so it was like we're all up here on the mountain together. And so there were very few fences, and if there was a barbed wire fence, it was trying to keep something in, and uh, and I would just have the permission to just spread the barbed wire apart and crawl through it, and nobody was going to bother. And if there were no trespassing signs, it was simply a legal thing. It wasn't because we weren't supposed to go on their land. It was just so in case somebody, I don't know, burned their barn down or something, they might have some legal interaction on it. But one of the things the story about the Indian burial. That's what I was just going to say. Is when we could go cross country, and uh, on more than one occasion, um, my mother, my sister, and I uh, rode up to the summit. There's that one high point before you go down to Napa, and then we just took off on the side down the hill, and that's the side at that point that has the stream, and it's just lovely woods, and we would have no particular direction in mind. We're just enjoying writing. So sometimes, just by happenstance, I would have to say, or maybe we had some idea that maybe we were going in the direction of where we had found this Indian burial ground. How did you tell that it was an Indian burial ground? They had grave markers. It was a rectangular shape in the woods. And it was... I don't know how to say the dimensions of this, but I would say it was more than twice this full dimension and half again. Mm-hmm. Two and a half with the porch included. Mm-hmm. And at least maybe three times so was- what this is. And it was a rectangular clearing in the woods. It was um, absolutely surrounded by forest mm-hmm. on all four sides. Um, a lot of Douglas fir, which of course go very straight up. 
uh, not like Bay and Madrone. So it was like there was a wall on four sides around this. And so it, you would have to be looking to see if you could see through continuing forests that you're going in and out between trees, trying to figure out your way, uh, that, oh, there's a clearing. And in the clearing, the only thing that grew was low grass, maybe a maximum eight inches. So and there were... What? You think it was tended? No, absolutely. No, I think the last um, time might have been, uh, you know, at the time of so many die off and the uh, epidemics in in the 1830s. And we were there in the 1940s, so it was more than a century. And they had uh, picked out uh, sticks that had interesting shapes to them, and then they had made some sort of cording on it, and they had made beads with holes in them, and of course a lot of the beads were um, shells that they had either gone to the coast or they had traded for, and they had strung them around, and you could see that they were in rows, so there were rows of of grave markers, and of course a number of the twigs hadn't been put down far enough that with the winds they had blown to the side, but you could see they were each on their plot of ground, and I think they were digging with antlers and sticks, and the ground is so hard here and so full of rocks. How are they going to do this? But they had buried their dead. And Tony knows this well, that one of the reasons I say it's Winton is the Winton buried their dead. And the Wapo did not. They were afraid the ghosts were going to come back, and so they cremated their dead to have them go away. Uh, They feared their dead. It's always fascinating to hear about how Hope and her family could, especially Hope, could ride her horse all over this mountain mm-hmm. without the fences. And, of course, the tree, it was all different. Right. Those things had been cut down and still growing all back. Open. And I, it must change over the last 60 years for you just to see how all these trees yes. have, have you know, mm-hmm. grown around us and, and you were asking, the environment. You were asking about the environmental changes. Well, we know there are bear and there are very few of the mountain lions. Uh, there are no elk anymore. Uh, and a lot of the trees have changed, Tony. The lower camp, some of them have the carvings on them on the stumps. It was covered with madrone. It just, we had so much shade in lower camp Mm -hmm. because of the madrone. And there's that one big, tall, dead uh, stump uh, over the mold dining hall. That was a madrone that covered the whole dining hall with shade, and there were two more out in front that covered the so dining the hall in shade. Just kind of skinny; they weren't big like they are now. Yeah, I have pictures that will be in the documentary that show how thin the redwood circle trees were. Uh, the, Does uh, this tree still exist? Is it still alive? That's the one that is up. Um, is this the one you call the magic tree? Yes, I call it the Lacoya big tree. Okay. Rick yeah. calls it the magic tree. Okay. <laughs> The preceding material is owned and distributed by the Lighthouse for the Blind in San Francisco, California. To obtain permission to use this content for classes or other uses, please contact us at publications at lighthouse-sf.org. Or to learn more about the Lighthouse, visit our website at www.lighthouse-sf.org.